Hello, and welcome to another edition of the PRA Podcast. My name is David Russell, and I'm here with my co-host, David Palman. How are you doing, David? I'm doing well. Good to hear from you, David. Hey, you too, man. How was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was good. After I worked, I uh, just played board games with the family. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was good. So do you have any specific board games in, that, that you guys play? Oh, let's see. We played Exploding Kittens, Bible Taboo, and uh, Pickwicks. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah, we usually get we usually do a board game every year. We buy one for the family, and we open it on Christmas Eve and play. So that's that's always pretty fun. But hey, man, there's another interesting thing that happened. You had an actual debate yesterday. So how did that go, man? Tell me. Uh, honestly, I'm gonna say I feel like I did not do great in it like i don't feel like i got smashed by my calvinist opponent but i would say i would definitely hand it to him i think he uh came across as more confident and better prepared than me though you know i don't think he answered all my arguments certainly not to my satisfaction but i i would say as far as how things would look to to the audience uh he, he definitely presented better than me yeah, well, David, you know, I watched the debate myself, and I think you did pretty good, man. Uh, you represented yourself well, and, yeah, that, I thought it was a great debate between you both. Well, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. So, hey, man, we got an interesting debate tonight. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you, David, and uh, if you just want to introduce our guest and get this thing rolling, man, I'm all for it. Yeah, sure. Sure. So uh, I've been, you know, following Chris Fisher's work for a while here, and uh, I've known Daniel Madden for a little bit here, met him on Facebook, and I uh, have had lots of fun arguing about Calvinism and presuppositionalism and, you know, all the things I disagree with him on. But uh, he's, he's a smart guy and a good brother in the Lord, and I, I do appreciate him for that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just knew I needed a good Calvinist on here to debate open theism with uh, Chris because... Uh, Chris is Chris is, is pretty good in his uh, defense of open theism, and so yeah, that was just kind of how this came together. Uh, to introduce them, uh, first guest would be Chris Fisher, of course. He's the author of God is Open, and he hosts uh, God is Open, got his own channel and website there. And uh, Chris, how are you doing tonight? Uh, pretty good. Uh, it's going to turn out to be a pretty fun night. All my friends, they're they're very angry that this is not being live live streamed. So, uh, so maybe we need to start live streaming some of these uh, debates sometime. But it seems like it's going to be a good night. I've talked to our friend Madden here a little bit. He seems like a sharp guy, and uh, and very personable. So I like the guy already. Yeah, I like you too, Chris. <laughs> All right, and on that note, then we'll introduce. Daniel Madden. Uh, he is a Calvinist and a presuppositionalist, as I said. And is there anything else you would like to tell us about yourself, sir? Uh, no, I'm just really glad for the opportunity to debate Chris. Uh, I saw your message when you asked me to do this, and I kind of, I think I said yes before I even knew who it was, maybe, uh, because uh, the the subject really interests me a lot. And so I'm, I'm excited to debate it. And uh, I'm really, uh, really impressed that Chris is willing to take on this this particular text uh, in regards to defending open theism. So I think it's going to be a great night. And yeah, on that, I'm going to introduce that topic because we're debating more tonight than just, uh, you know, is open theism true, which is kind of like, it was a very general topic, but these guys really wanted to narrow it down 
down right to Isaiah 40 through 48. So we've got, does that teach open theism? I was happy to give the guys more leeway, but this is what they, they agreed on. So, you know, here we go. Uh, so, yeah, does Isaiah 40 to 48 teach open theism? And uh, I'm going to let you go first, Chris. Uh, you got 10 minutes for your opening statement. All right. Uh, all right. I would first like to thank Mr. Paulman and Russell over here for hosting the debate. I'd also like to thank Mr. Madden for agreeing to appear opposite of me. Debating can be a scary task, especially when you're entering new territory. So I appreciate his willingness to engage in this important subject. First, we need to define our terms. William Shedd, famous Calvinist systematic theologian, describes omniscience in this way. The divine knowledge is intuitive as opposed to demonstrative or discursive, is not obtained by comparing one thing with another or deducing one truth from another. It is a direct vision, simultaneous as opposed to successive. It is not received gradually into the mind and by parts. The perception is total and instantaneous, complete and certain, as opposed to incomplete and uncertain. The divine knowledge excludes knowledge by senses, gradual acquisition of knowledge, forgetting of knowledge and recollection of knowledge. This is from his dogmatic theology. It's a Calvinist textbook. Contrary to this, open theism is the view that God can obtain knowledge discursively, gradually, or from outside himself. If I show one instance of God acquiring knowledge, open theism is true. Examples of this would be God acquiring knowledge from sight, God deliberating and then coming to a conclusion, God declaring things in the past, God making new decisions, God testing to know, God counting, God having new experiences, God responding to man, God showing emotions. In all these examples, God's knowledge changes. Keep this in mind when you hear any of my opponent's proof texts tonight. Are his proof texts arguing ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge, or are they self-defeating? Tonight's debate is not about what I believe. Tonight's debate is not about what Mr. Madden believes. Tonight's debate is narrowly focused on what the author of Isaiah 40 through 48 believed. For convenience, we will call him Isaiah. My goal tonight is to look at the text to see what it says. When reading these passages, the one question we need to have in our mind is if the text is written from the point of view that includes ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge within God. It's not enough to show that God knows some things about the future. I know some things about the future. Even if God knows all things about the future, if God gained that knowledge at any point of time, open theism is true. We have examples of acquired omniscience in other ancient Near Eastern religions. It's not enough to show that God knows all things. The, me the mechanism, the mechanism is what matters. How, how does God know? If God acquires from mechanisms such as counting, open theism is true. It's not enough to show God declaring some things about the future. I declare things about the future, things that happen. How does God declaring things about the future show ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge? Declaring sounds discursive. It's a decision and action. Declarations prove open theism. If it is a new declaration, all the better. It's definitely not enough to point to some vague phrase. God's understanding is infinite. And just assume it means a very specific third century philosophy. Context determines meaning. King David is said to know all things. The Prince of Tyre is said to know all secrets. Believers are said to know all things. Phrases out of context really don't tell us much. In regards to this particular phrase in Isaiah, infinite is the same phrase used for the amount of grain that Joseph collected. And understanding is an entire, entirely, entirely different attribute than knowledge in the Semitic mind. It is better understood as craftiness, the ability to perform. 
God can do things. My goal tonight is not to be a theologian, but someone with competent reading skills. We need to look at this historical document and use normal reading comprehension skills to understand it. There's no special pleading. There's no, oh, the author coincidentally just secretly held all the same theological beliefs as me. If our argument cannot be made from the text using the normal latitude of word meaning, it is not an argument. On a final note, I don't have to answer why the author holds the particular beliefs that he holds. I don't have to justify his system of belief. The debate is about what the text actually says. What we care about is the text, not moralistic fallacies. So let's turn to the text. Isaiah 40 introduces us to Deutero-Isaiah. It transitions from a third-person narrative in chapter 39. It begins with a declaration of God's greatness. There is a list of praises. Interestingly enough, ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge is not included in the descriptions of God. What is included is God's ability to count the amount of water on earth. God counts to know which would be an odd claim if the author holds to ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. Another interesting verse in chapter 40 is verse 21, which says, Man knows things from the foundation, from the foundation of the earth. Surely, surely, if this verse were about God, it would be one of my opponent's proof texts for ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. We can use this verse to understand how language naturally operates. We normally speak in generalities and hyperbole, but the only time the Christian wants to read these statements as metaphysics is when they're talking about God. Imagine that. The thrust of Isaiah 40 is about God's ability to perform. God can create. God can destroy. God can scatter. Compared to God, the nations and the other gods are nothing. Verse 27 tells us a common belief among Israel. Forget even generic knowledge of the future. They didn't even believe. Israel did not believe that God had familiarity with present events. Isaiah is fighting against this perspective. Notice how Isaiah argues. He doesn't argue like a modern theologian. There's no lessons on metaphysics and treatises on divine attributes. Instead, Isaiah argues that God is powerful and these people will be judged. That sounds fairly similar to debates I have heard between open theists and Calvinists. The open theist literally has to convince a skeptical Calvinist that, yes, God can do some things. In Isaiah 41, a divine trial begins. God puts himself on trial and invites people to judge the evidence. When reading the Bible, we have to keep in mind the entire text is advocacy. Israel does not have to worship Yahweh. Yahweh competes with other gods. Isaiah is not an exercise in speculative theology, but a concrete argument which can be evaluated to see if Yahweh is the true God. What happens is a courtroom scene. Yahweh argues, paraphrasing, you have seen me declare what I'm going to do in the past. Uh, You have seen these things come true. And then that's pretty good evidence that the things which did happen, those are the things that I did because I said I was going to do them before the fact. In this way, in this way, not not everyone could just claim after the, or anyone could claim after the fact that whatever happened, their God did. But the fact that I declare it beforehand, that's evidence to prove, prove that it's my act. So let's turn to Isaiah 48.3. The former things I declare of old, they went forth from my mouth. I announced them and suddenly I did them. They came to pass. So God has plans and God brings those plans about. Because I know that you are obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from old. So God's not declaring in, the, in, the, in a normal Calvinist mindset. There's like an eternal declaration from all time. No, God declares things to people. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image, and my mental metal image commanded them. 
you have heard. Now see this. Will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that have that you have not known. So he's declaring new things. We could see in in the history of Israel how God's declarations work, who he's declaring to, at what point of time, what's the process. We have technical examples in the context. They are created now, not long ago. This is not an eternal decree. Before today, you have never heard them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Notice a few things about the text. God declares the end from the beginning. The end are the results that he's declaring. The beginning is when he decides to do these things. God decides to do things. He tells people about them, and then he does them. He tells them for the purpose of convincing them that God is the one doing these things. God is not doing some eternal decree. He is declaring new things to people in real time. He's not declaring everything to ever happen, but specific power acts. And we see a good example of the scope of the power act. This declaration is about God's goals. And even in achieving these goals, there is a wide latitude of options that's available to God in achieving his goals. All of this is antithetical to ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. Notice that God is making real-time decisions and acting as things change. This is discursive knowledge. Notice the declarations that God makes. He makes as he decides to do new things. He tells Israel from the beginning. Israel knows from the beginning. Notice God is eager to separate himself from the false idols. These idols in Isaiah cannot see. In classical omniscience, God cannot see. God, Remember, go back to our definition from our Calvinist systematic theologian. God cannot see. Watch tonight the proof text used by my opponent. Do they actually teach ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge, or do they teach the opposite? Remember, open theism is true if God acquires knowledge from sight, Isaiah 44, 9. God deliberates and then comes to a conclusion, Isaiah 41, 26. God declares things in the past, Isaiah 41, 26. God makes new decisions, Isaiah 42, 9. God tests to know, Isaiah 48, 10. God counts, Isaiah 40, 12. God has new experience, Isaiah 42, 10. God responds to man's actions, Isaiah 44, 25. God responds to man's prayers. Uh, Calvinists always say, oh, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. God responds to man's prayer, 41, 17. God shows emotions, Isaiah 43, 24. God's actions fail to achieve their intended results, Isaiah 41, 26. There are no proof texts arguing ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge in Isaiah or the rest of the Bible. In fact, the way the author writes about God precludes this idea, Isaiah is an open theist. Thank you. All right, thank you for that, Chris. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, Daniel, it'll be your turn. 10-minute opening state. All right. Uh, first of all, I also would like to thank everyone for, one, for being here, both the Davids and also Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to uh, engage this debate and uh, just look into what exactly Isaiah was saying in these chapters, because I think that we're going to find it's going to be far different than what we just heard. All right, so let me begin by laying out what it is each of us needs to do tonight to win this debate. I'll start with the burden of proof. In this debate, Chris has taken the affirmative position, and as such, he's taken upon himself the burden of proof. That means that it is incumbent upon him to prove from the text of Isaiah chapters 40 to 48 that the author of those chapters was teaching open theism. Remember the topic of tonight's debate. Does Isaiah 40 to 48 teach open theism? That being the case, it's not enough for Chris to demonstrate that the text could allow for open theism. There's a big difference between a text allowing for a particular doctrine and actually teaching it. 
His burden tonight is to demonstrate that the writer of these chapters intended for his audience to understand God in open theistic terms. There is no question that these uh, chapters tell us a lot about who God is and how he acts in human history. The question is, do these teachings reveal a God that is open, that gains knowledge, and who is sometimes thwarted in his efforts? Or does it reveal a God who created all things, decrees all things, and does whatsoever he pleases? It will be my goal today to demonstrate from Isaiah the latter. In order for us to understand what is being communicated in the details of these chapters, it will be helpful to lay out a general summary of the text as well as some of the major themes contained within it. I'll start with the overarching theme. Overarching theme being that Israel can take comfort in God. Chapter 40 begins with the word comfort, and that's really the goal of these chapters. God was seeking to comfort the people of Israel. This comfort will be achieved by Israel recognizing who it is that they serve. Is the God who called them into existence truly able to deliver them from the power of his, or with the power of his outstretched arm, or will he be as the worthless idols that so many of the nations look to for help? Uh, supporting theme number one, God's word is sure. A major theme of chapter 40 is the contrast between the, two, uh, the sure nature of God's word and the temporary and frail existence of mankind and all that he does. This is critical to the comfort of Israel because it gives credence to the prophecies that are delivered throughout these chapters. For instance, starting at verse 3, cha uh, chapter 40, we have the famous prophecy that foretells John the Baptist. Uh, verses 3 through 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we all know this uh, particular prophecy. It's referred to by all four Gospels. And uh, all of them say that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this prophecy. So how could it be that the Lord has inspired these words some 700 years before the birth of John if he did not know what would happen in the future? Isaiah answers this question. In verse 7 and 8, after telling us that all flesh is as the grass of the field, it says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Israel can rest assured that the Lord will care for them because his word is forever. Supporting theme number two, God is creator. The author of Isaiah points Israel to the fact that God is the creator of all things. This is also important to their comfort because it demonstrates that God is meticulously uh, involved with his creation. The goal in all of this is to show that he is a God mighty to do whatever he puts his hands to. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 40, Isaiah begins a list of rhetorical questions regarding the creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked up the heaven with a span, and closed the dust of the earth with a measure, or in a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance? Mr. Fisher would have us to believe that God is gaining knowledge as he measures out the waters in the palm of his hand, or marks off the heavens with a span. Nowhere in this text does it imply God learning anything or gaining knowledge. God's hand is the standard against which the waters are measured, and his arm span is the standard against which the heavens are marked off. When we measure something today, we often use something called a rule or a ruler. And why do you think it's called that? It's called that because it is the sovereign against which we compare other things. It's the same situation here in chapter 40. God is the standard and his creation is calibrated to him, not the other way around. The chapter goes on to contrast God to all things, both men and idols. All men and all idols are counted as dust and as nothingless. The author points to the creative power of God. It was God who created all things, and he did it alone. Verse 14, he had no counselor. Uh, no one made him understand. No one taught him knowledge. Mr. Fisher will seek to separate out the attributes of God as though this passage is all about power and not knowledge. Verse 26 is a key in understanding how God's knowledge and power work together such that God does all that he has decreed. Verse 26, chapter 40, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
He does not create them and then respond to their existence by naming them. No, he determined their name and their number before they were created and then brings them all out, calling them by the name he gave them and not one is missing. His power enables him to carry out all that he purposes. This is knowledge and power working together to accomplish this. Supporting theme number three, God is in charge of human history. In chapter 41, the Lord will continue to offer comfort to Israel. He comforts them by appealing to his ability to direct all of humanity humanity to do what he has decreed. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 41, who stirred up from the east, uh, one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust and his sword like driven stubble with his bow. He answers this question in verse 3. Sorry, that may be a typo. Verse 4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. This is a continuous theme throughout these chapters. Israel can take comfort because their God is the one who decrees what will happen in human history, and he carries it out by his power. This is really what the court case is all about between the idols and God of Israel. The question at the heart of it is, whom among us is able to decree the future and then carry out that decree so that what he has said beforehand comes to pass as it was predicted? In chapter 41, verse 21, God calls on the idols to set forth their case, it will bring a challenge to them. This is similar to what Chris already read, so I'll run through this real quick. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, to declare to us or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Mr. Fisher will say that this isn't a test of knowledge, it's a test of power. I say the two cannot be separated. In order to exercise power in this way, you need to have knowledge of how you will apply that power. You need to have an outcome in mind before you put yourself to the uh, task uh, you're carrying out. Look what the verse says, verse 22. Tell us what is to happen. That's knowledge. Tell us the former things, what they are that we may consider them. That is knowledge coupled with wisdom. Not only what happened, but why it happened and what will be the outcome. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter. Knowledge again, so that we may know that you are gods. This is the test. What happened in the past and why? And what will happen in the future? If you can tell us that and it comes about, we will know that you are indeed gods. This challenge is brought to the idols again and again. Chapter 41, uh, verse 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? Chapter 43, verse 9, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? 44, 7, let them declare what is to come. 48, 14, who among them has declared these things? It's all about knowledge. This would all be a pointless court case unless the Lord could indeed do these things. Unless he did know the future, not passively as though he is peering into the future, but actively because he is decreeing the future and causing it to come about exactly as he has decreed. Uh, verse 4, chapter 41. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Behold, the former things have come to pass. This is 42, verse 9. Uh, have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Uh, 43, 12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. 43, 13, also henceforth, I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand, I work and who can turn it back. 44, 8, fear not, nor be afraid, have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses, is there a God beside me, there is no rock, I know not any. 
And then he goes on to give a very specific example of how he's doing this very thing that he just described. In chapter 44, verse 28, he calls Cyrus by name, the one whose right hand God will hold and lead through battle to deliver Israel from the hand of Babylon. And not only that he will deliver them, but specifically the purpose of their deliverance will be that they will rebuild Jerusalem and lay the foundation of the temple, something that we all know happened in history. When considering all these verses, as well as many more that I do not have the time to cite, I don't see how anyone really could believe that the intention of the author of Isaiah was to communicate that the God that Israel should take comfort in is one who is open to changing his mind or learning a better way. No, the writer was comforting the nation of Israel with the fact that their God is the God who rules over all of human history from creation through to the coming of the Messiah prophesied in chapter 42. He is the one who decrees all things and he is the only one who possesses the ability to make them come about precisely as he is foreordained. All right, well done, gentlemen. Uh, very good opening statements there. Uh, at this time, we're going to let you both just kind of have a free back and forth discussion with each other. Uh, why don't we let Chris kind of kick this off and I just, you know, hit uh, Daniel, whatever question you might have for him, and uh, we'll just, uh, see where the conversation flows from there. Yeah, uh, give me one second. Let's uh, find something real here. Questions. So let me tell you a story. Um, it's a story you may or may not have heard. Uh, have you ever heard of the Enuma Elish? It's an interesting text. It's uh, from Babylon, and uh, it 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 uh, stars these various deities. There's Tiamat and Apsu, and Apsu is killed uh, by these these gods, and Tiamat then wants to destroy these lesser gods. But then there's a new god, and his name's Marduk, and he is born into existence, right? And uh, the text describes him as perfect in knowledge. Of course, this is not uh, ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. We knew that from the story, right? And uh, so this, this Marduk, he rises up, he gets together a co coalition, and fights and kills Tiamat, and from him he creates the world. But the interesting thing about the Enuma Elish is that it ends with a list of praises. And a lot of the phrasing that's going on in the Enuma Elish is very similar to these Isaiah passages. So with just the basic knowledge of what this story entails, um, can you tell me what these statements mean? How about this? So this is about decree. Timot, her decrees are firm. They are beyond resisting. So what does that phrase mean? Does it mean that uh, Timot has declared all things from all eternity? Um, I, I think that you need to, so going back, you had this in your opening statement as well. You said something, uh, let's see, you said that um, basically a decree was not similar to what a, a Calvinist would have it be, that it is not um, decreeing something from the foundation of the earth and that it's an eternal decree that has to happen or anything like that. And you contrasted that with basically God speaking in time, correct? Am I, am I representing you properly in that? Well, the decree is right happening now, in time to people. So, well, Timot's decrees are firm and they are beyond resisting. So that, that's an interesting phrase because that gives absolute certainty that Timot's decrees are going to happen, right? They're beyond resisting. But what happens in the text is that Marduk 
overrides her. He he creates a coalition and overthrows her. And then the text starts describing Marduk in the same language. So I'm just asking you. Um, well, there's a, this, I it's mean, not a. I don't have that. I don't have question. that particular text in front of me, so I couldn't, without the context, I couldn't even argue completely. But what I would say is that number one, you're, you're dealing with two uh, entities that are similar in power and strength. One's making a decree, and the other one is violating that decree. And that's not the situation that we have in Scripture. In Scripture, we have a God who is described as Almighty, and this, the whole point of this passage is His ability to carry out whatever He, he declares I'm, that He's going to do. I'm just and asking a reading comprehension question what does it mean her decrees are firm they're beyond resisting well i think what's communicated by that author is that they are beyond resisting like i said without context i don't know if they're speaking about by people that they they can't be resisted by lesser beings but you, you have a situation where you have beings that are not necessarily uh elevated ultimate, right yeah uh, so later in the text hey chris chris could you just do me a favor and clear up what you mean by the enuma elish for our listeners a lot of okay. them don't know what that is so i mean so yeah we're going probably way above their heads here i think maybe yeah, okay. uh, some so, of us so what this is this is an ancient text that a lot of scholars they draw a lot of parallels to the bible it's interesting to me not for theological reasons i i don't I put much stock in it but it's interesting to me in terms of reading comprehension because there, it talks about gods, and it talks about gods with such language that we also find in the Bible. But a normal reader, using normal reading comprehension skills, when they come across these statements, oh, your de your decrees are firm, they are beyond resisting, you control the fates, uh, it's, they don't think of the Babylonians as Calvinists. No, no one, no one that I know of. Uh, ever sits back and looks at this and says, "Your uh, this is Marduk. Your decree is your unrivaled. Your command your command is on you. You Marduk are the uh, most honored of the great gods. Your decree is unrivaled. Your word is on you. From this day, your pronouncement shall be unchangeable. To raise or to bring low, these shall be in your hand. Your utterance shall be true. Your command shall be unimpeachable. No one among the gods shall transgress your bounds." So it's very concrete statements about uh, power acts, and it's a Ascribe to this Marduk, and Marduk's not a pan-ultimate god. He's a created being, and uh, conceptually in the story, he he perceivably can be overthrown, and so that leads us to believe that the narrative that we are presented uh, means that these glory statements or these praise statements are not they're not metaphysics. We're, we're not looking at metaphysics. We're looking at praise statements. Your pronouncement shall be unchangeable. Your command shall be unpeachable. No one among the gods shall transgress your bounds. Uh, it's, it's a possibility. It's not a metaphysical absolute. We, what we read in this is hyperbole, and that's how a normal reader will come to this text. None of these people, none of the ancient scholars of Babylonian culture are think that the Babylonians were Calvinists. That's just not an option in our normal spectrum of reading comprehension. There's a number of problems I have with that. Number one, like I said before, given the context, if he's speaking to, to created beings that are lesser beings than him, it could be very well be that, that those words mean, it would be like me telling my kids that I'm unassailable and uh, unimpeachable. And my kids, to them, I am, because they're, they're lesser beings than me in regard to their strength and their ability. It, it would, so in, in that context, I can see that that is probably what would be understood, honestly, by a reader that was reading it. They wouldn't uh, necessarily ascribe to that particular uh, deity uh, the ability to decree things for other equal deities, which it doesn't even make logical sense if they were of any sort of equal. And again, I don't have the text in front of me, so I can't uh, 
argue the specifics of it, but that's what I would say in regard to that. And also in the text of Isaiah, uh, these things are not necessarily being ascribed to God by uh, a third party. Many of the times that they're mentioned in the text of Isaiah, it's God ascribing them to himself. He says, I will do these things. I have done these things. And he speaks of himself. So it's self-attestment and not necessarily ascribing praise. He's not praising himself necessarily in those texts. Right. I would agree. And so a normal reader coming to these phrases in this other text, they're not going to see Calvinism. But what happens when we turn to the Bible, all of a sudden we put on our special goggles and well, we, we like our own theology. And so we bring our own theology into the text and we see God decreeing and saying, I decreed it. I will make it come up to pass. And then we say, oh, that must be my special theology rather than allowing uh, phrases that are very similar when we come across them. We, we don't think Calvinism. So if you're using normal reading comprehension standards in Isaiah, our first stop is not going to be Calvinism. Our first stop is going to be God's decreeing things in time, things that he bl- plans to bring about. And he can do that because he does have some power to do that. It's not eternal decrees that we're reading. It's not fatalism. Things aren't set. Does that make sense? Well, it makes perfect sense. And I wouldn't even necessarily say that in uh, these situations in our text where God says that you decree something and it comes to pass, I wouldn't say that in the, in the speaking, in time, when he decrees these things to listeners, that is not when the, the eternal decree happened. Clearly, it wouldn't be an eternal decree. The eternal decree happened before the foundation of the earth. But the, the thing that so many people miss with Calvinism in regard to soteriology and everything else is that God does not just uh, ordain the ends, he ordains the means. And so in that, he ordains that people would hear him in time and that he would also carry out those acts in time. And so it doesn't, the two are not opposed to each other. It is a, it's a false dichotomy to say that, that you have a decree in time or a eternal decree that is one or the other. It can very easily be both. There can be an eternal decree and then that uh, eternal decree must play itself out in time for it to happen in time. Otherwise, the decree would never uh, come to pass in, in all of human history. Yeah, so in Isaiah, though, we we get examples of God decreeing things, things that are new. And we don't get any sense that the author had some sort of eternal decree in the back of his mind that's playing out in time. We get, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, 42.9. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and a river, rivers in the desert. 48.6. You have heard. Now see all this. Will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. God's declaring things in time. And you're trying to argue that, no, God, Isaiah doesn't really have this idea of God operating in time and declaring things as he decides to do them. Instead, there's some sort of eternal decree. Where do you get that? It's not in the text. First of all, I think you're misrepresenting me. I, I don't say that Isaiah is arguing uh, eternal decree in, in most of these situations. I think that he's saying that God is decreeing these things in time and he will carry them out. But that does not mean that he didn't purpose to do them from the foundation of the earth. There's no reason to to rule that option out as as the reality. Um, and furthermore, at, at what point in the text can you demonstrate that Isaiah is saying that God is is making these decisions as he goes? That it, that he is somehow uh, subjugated to knowledge, and and based on that knowledge, he's going to to make these decrees rather than he's purpose from the foundation of the earth to do them, and then he decrees them in time. There's nothing to eliminate that. Um, he told no, them in no the beginning, right? Uh, he says to Israel, I decreed, I declare to you in the beginning, in the beginning mm-hmm. is ascribed to Israel. So in the beginning of what? 
in the beginning of, of their time in relationship with him or regardless a, a point in time it doesn't mean like i said I, I think you're you're either missing what i'm saying or you're you're just purposely avoiding it because what's going on here is there can be a decree that's eternal that is hidden and then there can be a decree that's made in time that is uh in harmony with that eternal decree yeah so how, came how, did this two, text? how did the two oppose each other uh, because God operating in, in time is gaining new experiences, declaring new things is new actions. Does, does God gain new experiences? Does Isaiah believe it? Does Isaiah believe that God gains new experiences? Uh, in, in the sense of time, I, again, this is getting into just like uh, philosophy more than what's actually in the text, I think. But in time, God can experience things in time. It does not mean that they are new to him because he he knows the end from the beginning. So, so not he receives things knowledge. from he receives things from outside himself. They don't because, change his knowledge. But to experience something is a gain in knowledge. We go back to our definition, Calvinistic uh, systematic theologian. Uh, any any sort of gain from outside of yourself is in fact is in fact that it's open theism. Can you demonstrate from our text anywhere where he's gained knowledge? Yeah, he counts. Isaiah 40, 12. I already refuted that. That's not at all what it's saying. What it's saying is that he is the standard by which those things are measured. So in the creation account, he is the standard. He uses his hand and he says, this is how much water I'm going to create. So I have a question for you in regard to that. Well, um, okay, does, go ahead. Can, can God forget? In the Bible, they, there is some parts where there's nescience, and in our Isaiah text, there is a part where it sta states that God will forget people's sins. And so the question well, is, well, was Isaiah believing that was a literal forgetting of sins? Was it uh, more of a metaphor? That's an open question. But it is a possibility that Isaiah believed that God can forget things like sins. Okay, so in particular, can he forget how much water he created? Uh, I, I wouldn't, well, first of all, we're, we're discussing Isaiah. Uh, so Isaiah's theology, God says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He is describing God counting. A counterclaim is not refuting. Making a counterclaim, there's nothing in that text to support your counterclaim. He is measuring the waters in the hollow of his hand. The picture here being drawn is a big hand that's counting out the water. That, that's the picture, the mental image. And what you're suggesting is pushing against the grain of this imagery. We need to flow with the text, not against it. He is counting to know. Yeah, I absolutely disagree. So when you go and you take a tape measure to measure something, um, you gain knowledge because you don't know what it is that you're measuring. Right. If you already know what you're measuring, then there's there's no sense in, in saying that you're you're learning anything. He he created all the water. He already knows how much water there is. That's why I'm asking if you either he forgot how much water there was, he forgot how big the heavens were, or he created them in the creation act. He was using himself as a standard to determine the size and the volume of these things, which I think makes the reads perfectly well with what the text is saying. So I, I think it is the natural conclusion. Right. Especially so when it's describing creation. I mean, that's what's going on. That is the overall whole theme there. Yeah, he's measuring the waters in the hollow of his hand is what the text said. He is is counting. Uh, you you want you 
it seems that you want to read all these verses in some special lens that's not apparent in this text. We would not do this if we came across this text and we weren't Christians. No non-Christian is going to read this and, and come to your conclusion that you just stated to us. It's not natural to the text. It's, 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 a, it's a mitigating mechanism to subvert the text. Again, I don't have to defend Isaiah's views. I don't have to say why Isaiah believes what he does. We look at what Isaiah says and then we we either believe or we don't believe what he says. That that that's our part in this. I absolutely agree, and I think it's it's very clear. And honestly, and I I think that apart from either of our opinions, when someone reads that text, what they understand is that the power of God to create all of the water exactly the amount that He wanted to create. That's what He's trying to communicate. He's not communicating that. He made water. Like, why would why would he go and measure the water after he made it to find out how much there is? That that's not what he's trying to communicate. What he's trying to communicate is his ability to create the amount of water that he wanted to create. That he is so, the one that established how much water there is in creation, how big the the heavens are, and, and so on. Right. Yeah, well, the amount of water changes and fluctuates on Earth, and so we we got to keep that in mind. That might be what Isaiah has in mind with this continual counting of uh, the water. It's interesting oh. because in Isaiah 40, it might be. Uh, I can't speak for Isaiah. You'd have to ask him yourself. So he but was a scientist, Isaiah, huh? <laughs> yeah, so God counts to know within the Bible, uh, but we're in Isaiah 40 here. And so in Isaiah 40, this is actually Hold on one a divine council scene. Uh, if you're going to move on to another subject, I just real quickly regarding um, uh, those verses in, in chapter 40 there, if we move down a little bit further, it uses the exact same language to say, who has measured the spirit? Do you think that God had to measure his own spirit to learn how things about his own spirit? Yeah, it's it's probably counting up or what man has shown him counsel. It, it seems to be some sort of idiomatic phrase to su suggest that we, we can't fully understand God, or we're not on his level. We are so and yet far that he below can, him. Correct? And yet that he can, correct? Possibly. That is a possibility <laughs> in the text. Well, I'm just saying, I was, you're, what you were saying is that, that this is, is teaching us that we don't know, and the opposite, the, the conclusion that would obviously be desired from the author is that we would understand that God is not like that. So uh, I, He's constantly think... pitting mankind against God, and in this case, he, he's saying that God, uh, that mankind cannot measure the spirit, and yet God knows all of the spirit. And it's not because he took a tape measure and went and measured the size of the spirit. He knows himself perfectly. No one else knows the knows God except for himself, and he knows it perfectly. So I think this really, again, just destroys the argument that he was somehow gaining knowledge in either of the other situations, whether it was with the water or with the size of the heavens. Yeah, I think the contrast is between uh, God and man. God can measure the waters. You can't even measure God. You're so far below him. I don't I don't see how that's an argument for. For uh, what, What's our phrase here? We are looking for ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge, which that's that's not in his uh, budget set, I'll his just theological budget set. Just as a quick reminder, I don't have to prove any of that, and that's not my definition, and I have no burden of proof to prove that. All, all right. that I have to do is demonstrate that that Isaiah is not teaching open theism, and I, I don't think that uh, I have to demonstrate at all uh, your, your okay. particular definition of omniscience. So, so you would admit, you would uh, admit, uh, gentlemen, gentlemen, I'll give you, I'll give you both one more uh, pass on on this particular topic. So, Chris, I'll let you right. uh, go with that, and then I'll let Daniel respond. Then uh, I do want to give Daniel a chance to, you know, hit you with uh, a question that he would Absolutely. have. So. Uh, 
Absolutely. So uh, you yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, in Isaiah 40, 12, if God is counting, then open theism is true. You would admit that, right? If if the text in Isaiah 40, 12 is God counting, then open theism is true. Is that true? I would say that if if what is happening there is that God is learning information that he did not already possess perfectly, then yes, it would be. But that's not what's happening <laughs> Yeah, so it seems like, like to me, like there's a there's a big disagreement here on on what God already knows versus what maybe God is learning. Am I am I correct in hearing that, guys? Is that in, where the disagreement lies here? Well, I, I, it's in, I, I, think I think there's a a lot to it. It's in the very nature yeah. of God, how how God knows things, what God knows. Um, if he, you know, it, it can get into a lot of. Uh, attributes about God, whether he is, you know, unchanging everything else, but that's not really the yeah. topic of the debate. Um, yeah. So you would admit a change would be a new experience, right? Yes. If God was changed in his, in his being, it would be that he changed. And so but, you uh, have new experiential knowledge. We're, we're going to get to this a little bit later. If God has a new experience, he's gaining knowledge, right? No, he's not. I, I, disagree right, uh, gaining, I disagree that he's gaining knowledge. No, he knows all things before they happen. He knows the end from the beginning. That's why it's said so many times. Yeah, knows. I, I think I think for Daniel, like what you're saying is that like the means he also decrees. So that's how that's where this this kind of thing lies for you, where this knowledge lies for you. Am I gaining that right? Yeah, we need to understand. I mean, I think for Chris, and I, I don't want to misrepresent you, Chris, but I, I just feel like from the things I've heard from you, you essentially see God as, as being um, like us in the sense that he is a temporal being. Not, not that me. Had, not say that he had a beginning. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I did, don't think Isaiah said anything like Daniel, that. Daniel, yeah, I'll give you the last word on that, Daniel, and then uh, we'll give you the chance to hit Chris with a question, all right? Okay, anyway, so what, what I was getting out there is that uh, God is eternal, he is outside of time, and yet he acts in time. He's both of those things, and the two are not mutually exclusive, and I think whenever we try to tear those things apart mm -hmm. is when we run into uh, problems like we're having here. All right, so um, Chris, question I would have for you is, can you tell me what God does know? Well, uh, again, we're, we're talking about Isaiah here. And uh, in Isaiah, God knows quite a lot. And so he's depicted of having a lot of knowledge, uh, not necessarily absolute knowledge. Uh, there, there seems to be gaining of knowledge throughout the text. Okay, so you... You can't tell me what the extent of God's knowledge is, or you don't think that you're just saying that you don't think that Isaiah addresses that. Well, uh, we we I gave a big list of different verses about God's gaining of knowledge, and so God is described as the God who sees, the God who knows, the the idols uh, don't see, as opposed to God who does see. So God has familiarity with all that exists. It it, it looks like in the Isaiah text again. Uh, we're, we're here to talk about Isaiah's perspectives on God, and so you're trying to make it personal about mine. I think I, Isaiah— I'm sorry, that's not what I'm trying to do. I, I'm trying to honestly understand your opinion on uh, how you see God's, God's knowledge. Um, uh, it, 
I understand right. what you're so, saying, though. I mean, so if we can limit we it to through, only what's spoken from Isaiah and try to discern his mind in regard to that. But. Right. So we see God's attempts to reach man failing throughout Isaiah. And so, which suggests to me there, there's not an eternal omniscience of all events that ever happened. His intended results of his appeals to man consistently fail. It's not that God's acts. How do you God know what his plans, intended results are that failed? Because it tells us that we could go to Isaiah 41, 26. 41, 26. Okay, so he declares it from the beginning that we may know. And beforehand that we might say he is right. And there's none who declare it. So God declared it so that we would say he's right. And that, that uh, fails to materialize in the text. The net is actually, the net version translation what? is uh, actually even better than the ESV. I'm using the ESV. So let's pull that up. 126. Oh, I don't got it on that Bible. But uh, yeah, we were supposed to declare to that he's right. God says, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and him that we might say he is right. There is none who declared it, Hooper complained, and none who heard your words. Okay, I, I guess I'm having a little uh, trouble understanding how this is a demonstration of God failing or that his decree is not, not being carried out. Yeah, I, I think I grabbed the wrong verse. Uh, let me uh, figure out where the actual verse I'm thinking of is. I, I apologize. All right, go ahead. I'll retract that point. Okay, do you want me to move on to a different question then, or do you uh, want me just simply to... You can restate the question, that works. Okay, so where in Isaiah, in these chapters that we're looking at, do we see that God has failed to carry out his decree? Yeah, I got uh, God being subverted. So what you guys are saying is that God isn't in control. One person saying that God is in control. One person says that God isn't in control. I see. No, I'm just playing with you. Well, I'm basically Don't add that, you know, God's in control. The reason I asked this specific question <laughs> is because if the answer is that God decrees something in time, whether it's an eternal decree or a decree in time, even if I granted that he was only decreeing it in time, then if he failed to carry it out, your whole argument about what this courtroom scene is about goes away because you said that the whole courtroom is about him saying what he's going to do and then actually doing it right so if, well, if he's not always able to carry out what he says he's going to do then does not he also fail that test and he has no business arguing with these idols that would do the same thing the Dan, problem is can I, can I just interject one second before before you you give your response chris daniel could you uh could you clarify, like, I mean, can you explain a little bit about decrease? I mean, just for the audience, because, uh, you know, this stuff is actually pretty deep, you know? So if you could just explain yeah. to us, you know, about decrees and stuff like that, and just like, you know, just give us a baseline. 
Well, from a theological point of view, most yeah. people would consider the eternal decree of God, meaning something that he has stated that he's going to do, whether he has said it in time or it's just in the council of the Trinity itself, between the three members of the Trinity, that they have, uh, that this decree has happened prior to uh, the existence of the earth, before the foundations of the earth. We have tons of uh, statements in scripture, even referring to Christ as the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, that God knew that Christ would die uh, even before the foundation of the earth. And so there's an eternal decree in that sense that that everything that God purposes to do, he purposed it from before the foundations of the earth. Uh, whether that's, you know, that's not necessarily limited by the time frame that we're, we understand because uh, most Calvinists at least would, would say that God is outside of time, that he is not uh, subjugated to time in all situations. It doesn't mean that he can't enter into time, but he is not uh, trapped by time like beings such as ourselves are. And so whether it's a logical uh, priority that it is logically before, or if it is actually a temporal one is, uh, is a point of debate, but it, it says that it is before even the beginning of creation. It's before the foundations of the earth that these decrees happen. Now, a lot of what's in our text here is not speaking with that same terminology. It's talking about, as Chris said, God is saying stuff in time to listeners. There is an audience and there's a speaker. But what I was trying to clarify earlier is that those two things are not necessarily in conflict with one another. You can have an eternal decree and yet it must, if it's ever going to happen in time, if, if God decreed from eternity past that he was going to do something in time, then it must happen in time. And so there's no reason that it could not also be decreed in time verbally to an audience. Those two things are not opposed to each other. They can work uh, in conjunction with one another. So things we right, learn, Chris. About, uh, so sorry. Things, oh. Go ahead. So things we learn about decrees. I was going to say you can give your own. Uh, about the decrees, yeah, uh, and I'll actually <laughs> answer your question as well. And so we we see that we see the scope actually of God's decrees. God says he declares it in the beginning to Israel. So beginning's not like, oh, it's time eternal. It's a timeless decree or anything like that. The beginning is when the events starting to happen. And we see the, the scope of the decree. I decree that I'm going to uh, send you into Babylonian captivity. He's not, he's not making a list of names to send into Babylonian captivity. He's corporately sending them there, which gives him a wide latitude on fulfilling that decree. When God is subverted in the text, it's in texts like uh, Isaiah 48, 17, thus says the Lord Redeemer, Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. God's teaching them to profit. God's leading them where they should go, yet it fails to materialize. This isn't his eternal decree that everyone and here's the list of names these people will reject me and these people will will go along with me these are general decrees these are plans the net actually is a pretty good translation of the bible which 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 translates a lot of these decrees as plans god has a plan he wants to accomplish and we see the scope of the plan it is not everything god is not decreeing everything from some timeless eternal void god's declaring from the beginning to people uh he's declaring new things that are not previously declared my opponent here wants to claim that there's some sort of eternal decree uh, these are not yet declared things these are new things he, he he makes new decrees in the text 
And so what he wants to do is he wants to say God is timeless, eternal, and there's 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 new decrees in time, but Isaiah secretly believes that that's subservated by some sort of eternal decree. Reading the text, a normal competent reader coming to the text would not get that idea. They would actually get as our uh, our good uh, Madden here, he pointed out that Isaiah thinks that Yahweh is temporal. God acts in time. God responds to events. The people pray to God. God responds to prayer. Responding, again, that's a, a, a knowledge to God. That's God gaining information. I don't see how it's God gaining information if he knew everything that was part of the contents of those prayers and, and everything else from the foundation of the earth. Be and also, if he had actually decreed every single part of those, both the prayer itself, the means by which that prayer came about, his response to that prayer, how any of that would be him gaining knowledge. I think that's a just a, a characterization of, of the Calvinistic position that's not not at all uh, because it's discursive. True. But I want to go back to I want to go back to since I didn't get an answer. If God can fail, then how does your description of the court scene? How does it make any sense at all if God cannot always carry out as uh, the thing that He decrees in time? Well, where did I say that Isaiah thinks that God's decrees are going to fail? What you're doing is uh, you're taking subverted expectations, uh, subverted intended results, and then you're conflating it with his decree. He didn't decree by name people who would reject it and uh, throw him off or people who would respond to him. He decreed general things. I'm going to bless Israel. He decreed That's Cyrus by name. Yeah, that's an individual uh, for a specific purpose. Very he specific. didn't degree everyone by name. We don't get that from the text. But, but deal with Cyrus, because you said that the, the issue with Israel is that it was not individuals. And then when I bring up an individual, which is Cyrus. Yeah, that's a different decree. In the text, and so you're, you pull up a decree about an individual. Yeah, God can decree things about individuals too. But you, you, it's, it's a mistake to conflate those general decrees. decrees I'm going to bless Israel. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to lead you into Babylonian captivity. Now I'm going to declare a new thing. I'm going to lead you out of Babylonian captivity. These are general block statements. And so, yeah, you could declare things about individuals. You can have prophets uh, and declare them and, and uh, ministers of God and declare them by name. But those other general decrees, it's a mistake to conflate those two. How does, how does he know then that Cyrus is going to do as he is decreed in time? Why? There's uh, all sorts of ways you could do that without having ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. And so again, uh, what's Isaiah's perspective? God is powerful. God's able to do things. We have examples throughout the Bible of God getting people to do what people want. Jonah doesn't want to preach to Nineveh. He gets swallowed up by Why a fish. Why are we fish. running off to Jonah? Because, because specifically with Cyrus. How did you know Jonah, Cyrus Jonah, Jonah, you guys, you guys is, have... Go ahead, go ahead illustration. Chris, finish, finish up. It doesn't have to be in the Bible. God can, well, hypothetically, there's there's a guy that he tells to do something. That guy refuses. Hypothetically, he could get some sort of, I don't know, giant fish to swallow him up and throw him <laughs> out in a place to do the thing that God decreed for him to do. Hypothetically, these options are available to us in getting someone to perform God's decrees by name if there's an individual named decree. But it doesn't, again, decrees negate ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, unfalsifiable knowledge, decrees are actions. Decrees are discursive, discursive, where God's thoughts lead one from the other to come to a conclusion. Discursive thought is open theism. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think you guys are going to get past the decrees here. <laughs> um, I'm just going to give you uh, one more 
a minute if you want to respond to that, Daniel, and then either we can move on to another subject or another yeah, question. Yeah, we can we can certainly move on. Uh, again, I, I would just reiterate that that the you know for it to be discursive, you have to somehow pit the two against each other. That that there is not an eternal decree, and that the decree in time is somehow pitted against that concept, and that the two cannot coexist. And I would just argue that they do coexist perfectly, and it's because of the one that the other actually happens in time. All right. Well, um, whoever has the next question, uh, Chris, did you have another question? Okay. So let's let's talk about prayer. Um, is God responding to prayer? Does God is does Isaiah represent God as responding to prayer in the text? See, now you're going to get me looking. Um, well, I don't want to ambush you. The, the answer is yes. Well, you, which specific verse are you talking about? I think it'd be better if we just jump straight to the verse that you have in mind or a number of verses, if there are a number, and I can respond to them directly. All right. Uh, let's see. Okay, so uh, 40, uh, 17 is one example of God responding to prayer. The pressed and poor look for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched from thirst. I, the Lord, will respond to their prayers. I, the God of Israel, will not abandon them. That's the net translation. Uh, ESV uses a slightly different translation, uh, but there's other What other was the examples. reference? Because that's not what I have for 4017. What was the reference again? 4117. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. I said 4017. I apologize. So he'll answer them, right? So I think so that you're, you're inferring that there was a prayer, but I, I'm not against there being a prayer there. Um, they they are parched. Uh, they are thirsty. They they're whether whether they're they're crying out like the blood cries out from the ground to God, like He's seeing their situation, and is the situation is what He is meeting the need for. Is uh, answering someone discursive? I, I I don't agree that it is because he he is. He has decreed all of these events. These things have all right. Do you know what discursive? Do you do? What, do are we on the same page? What I'm talking about here? So God's knowledge in classical theism, it doesn't. It's not a series of things. This leads to this. I do this for this reason, and because of this, then I do this. It's it's a single uh, event that's uh, eternal in the mind of God. A simple act. And so if God is responding to events if someone prays and god acts on account of that prayer then god has it's open theism is true god has discursive knowledge he's basing his actions based on input no i i again that's what i said if, if he's decreed all parts of it i don't know it's just going back to the same thing if he is if he's behind all that's happening if, if he is determine the ends as well as the means, the prayers, the people that are offering the prayers, and also the way that he's answering it, then I, I don't see it as being discursive in the way that you are defining, or the way that you are describing it, rather, that it's going from, from one thing to the next to the next, as though something happens, he learns something, then he responds to that in time, as though he didn't know it was going to happen exactly like that. Um, do, you, do you see how that's, that's weird to me, coming to the text? Isaiah says, God will answer them. So God's responding to people and then you're saying, oh, no, Absolutely. that's from their perspective. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. 
When I pray right. to God, he answers my prayers, and it's actually him answering my prayers because he has foreordained that that would be the means by which he would carry out his will is that I would seek it from him and he would answer my prayer. I'm glad you make things. that distinction. Oh. From our perspective, you're saying that this text, from our perspective, says open theism. No, that's not what I'm saying. From our perspective, it looks like it looks like God is answering prayer in the way that you're describing, but it's not it is yeah. not defining God that way. It's from our perspective, what God is doing in time. He does from our answer perspective, their, he this is discursive. Answers, he absolutely answers their question or their, their request in time, and yet he has decreed that he would do so. He has decreed that they would ask for it, and he knew the outcome, and he knew the, the means by which that would come about. So, no, it's not discursive in the way that you're describing it. Right, but if you read it, uh, from our perspective, you said it's discursive. Is, is a normal person going to think this is discursive, that God is answering prayer? What I'm saying is that God and man are not the same at all, and in no way is, in fact, that's one of the major themes of this section, is that how high God's ways are above ours, and how his, how his understanding is unsearchable by us, that, that there's a, a vast difference between the two. And so this is simply de describing what's happening in history, in time. This is the way we perceive it, and it is in no way in conflict with an all-knowing uh, God that has decreed these things from yeah, so, so basically anytime you say that, oh, it's from our perspective and this is just uh, written for us at our level, I, I got a lot of feedback from someone's mic somewhere. No? Okay. Right there. All right, so basically every time you state that, uh, you know, this is from our perspective, it looks like this, but really there's this eternal decree. Basically what you're saying is Isaiah's writing like an open theist, just that. He secretly has this entire different system that he's operating on. And so we really don't take the text on face value. God doesn't actually answer us uh, from a divine perspective. That's what it sounds like to me. It may sound that way, but that's not at all what's going on. I'm just telling you that if so, for, for an instant, if, if what I was saying was true, then how would you um, write this if you were from the other perspective? Why, why would you write it any different than this? Right, because uh, a lot of, there, there are a lot of theologians throughout history who believe your perspective, and they write things like, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes us. It's not a biblical statement. You're not going to find it in the Bible. It's, it's a theological speculation that people have to actually grapple with this, and they write it out like that. So when God uses uh, phrases like, no one will stay my hand, no one will turn, turn me back, no one uh, can stop me from doing it, like all of those things, um, how, how do you explain those then? Because God's powerful, and these are power acts. And uh, just like any normal competent reader coming to the Enuma Elish, they're going to read those as this, this God that's being described is powerful, is capable of doing things. The, the test in Isaiah is not like God's species unique. Instead, it's more like God is the, the true God, and all these other gods are false gods. It's not like, oh, God has all these uh, metaphysical attributes that these other gods don't have. That's not what's going on there. This is tangible things that people can evaluate. This is evidence that they can historically look into in order to verify if the things that are being said are true. I absolutely agree. That's All right, gentlemen, I, I, uh, I think that, yeah, I'll give you a chance to respond to that, Daniel. I, I think that we uh, have pretty much uh, beat that horse as much as we can on both sides. Uh, 
I'll let you both sum up the positions that you're, uh, you know, what, what you're saying uh, on this final point. I'll give you both the final word. Uh, I'll start with you. Uh, well, I'm going to let Daniel respond to the last thing you said, Chris. And Chris, I'll let you sum up your uh, what you were saying and then just give you a final word. Do the same thing with Daniel, and then we're going to uh, start wrapping this up. That's cool. All right. Uh, so first, Daniel, uh, just, you know, you can give your final thoughts on what Chris had just said. Yeah, so just in general, I think when we talk about the court scene, what's going on there is exactly what you're saying, that something is said in time, he's going to do something in time, and whether he carries it out, and not only whether he carries it out, but it also, as I brought up before, what the purpose of it was, that there is purpose behind these things happening, and to be able to decree what the purpose of it was, specifically like Cyrus, who he specifically calls him by name, uh, hundreds of years, well, depending on, on your view on who the, the author is, but well before Cyrus is uh, in the picture, that he's going to do these specific things and it's going to be for the purpose that Israel would leave and specifically go to reestablish foundation, uh, reestablish Jerusalem and the foundations of the temple. And I would argue that if God fails in these very specific uh, things that he has said in time, then he would also be failing the test. And this would be a, a worthless court scene because both him and the idols would be shown to be incapable of doing what they say. All right. So Isaiah doesn't think God's decrees fail. Sometimes God's intentions for his decrees fail. Israel is continually not evangelized throughout the Bible and continually reject him. And we see that uh, throughout this text. But uh, what I hear a lot of is kind of like a special pleading, like, well, Isaiah really, he talks like, you know, God has discursive knowledge. He talks like God answers prayers, but really there's this, this this entire mechanism behind this all that we need to just we just need to know this before we come to the text because uh, it, we we don't see it from the text in the text God's knowledge God's actions are discursive He responds to people responding to people violates eternal ungenerated non-discursive unfalsifiable knowledge It's a response to external stimuli. All right. So uh, from a just, uh, you know, going from Chris's perspective of just reading this on its face value, I don't think that anyone comes to the conclusion that Isaiah is uh, teaching open theism, that that the, the reader would understand that, that what Isaiah wants you to know about God is that God does not know necessarily what's going to happen in the future. He, he can learn. He is gaining knowledge or anything like that. Rather, the overarching theme here is that God is going to do exactly what it is that he said he was going to do. And we see that again and again uh, with the, the multiple examples of Israel and also the specific example of Cyrus, that God is carrying out exactly what he said he would carry out, which is why he makes a challenge again and again to all of these idols who cannot do that exact thing. They cannot tell you what's going to happen in the future. They can't tell you why the things happened in the past, and they cannot carry out any of them. Uh, and that is really what I is, Isaiah is trying to uh, portray and for the specific reason of comforting the nation Israel so that they will know that they can trust in God, that he's going to carry out all that he says he's going to carry out, which is the overarching theme of all of these uh, passages. Well, gentlemen, that was that was a heated and, and a very feisty debate, man. I, I thank you guys both was for that coming onto the show. Was that my was closing it? statement? That I thought it was. <laughs> I, I thought, thought we was. were summing up that one issue, and oh, then we're going to go to conclusions. Well, you guys can. I mean, I, hey, we got more time here. We got a, a couple more minutes here for both. I had like, I like, had like a whole conclusion right now. With well, like, uh, go for it, man. Go <laughs> for it. We'll, 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 we'll give you your epic finale, Chris. We'll give you your epic yeah, okay. finale. Go for it, finale. Do we got fireworks? Uh, okay. Madden, do you got some fireworks for me? 
Oh, I don't know. Uh, no, oh, I'm in California, man. You know. Oh, they don't—they don't allow anything there. Oh, yeah, they don't allow you to do anything. Oh, We're probably going to get arrested for this debate. They are all nuts. I don't know. We can't move away from that. But that's terrible. So, some some concluding thoughts. Uh, I'd like my audience to think about our exchange tonight. Think about the verses that are used. Does Isaiah, when he's writing the book of Isaiah, have in mind ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable uh, knowledge? We so see no evidence that the author held such a position. Special pleading is not evidence. Uh, my opponent came to the text with some philosophy. We saw some of that. We, we have to read this text in this way because of the nature of God. That's kind of a special pleading uh pleading argument. You just don't get ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge from the text. Contrary to this, Isaiah affirms God acquires knowledge from sight. Isaiah 44, 9. God deliberates and comes to conclusions. Isaiah 41, 26. God declares things in the past. Isaiah 41, 26. God makes new decisions. 42, 9. God tests to know. Isaiah 48, 10. God counts. Isaiah 40, 12. God has new experiences. 42, 10. God responds to man's actions. Isaiah 44, 25. God responds to man's prayers, Isaiah 41, 17. God shows emotions, Isaiah 43, 24. God's actions fail to achieve the intended results, Isaiah 48, 18. Isaiah teaches us a lot of things about God, how God acts, how God decides, how God communicates, even how God accomplishes. The data being presented for evaluation leads us to God. This is a tangible idea. It's not historic. This is this not a metaphysical uh, depiction that we're giving here. These are historical claims. We get a picture of a God who acts and reacts to creation, infinitely clever and adapting to changing circumstances with force, with might. This is all about God's power to accomplish. We do not get the God of the philosophers eternally simple, residing outside of space and time, forever immutable, like the stone idols that God hates. God acts in time. God is not an idol. God compares himself to idols throughout the Bible. These idols are not alive. They are immutable. They are criticized because they cannot act. They cannot move. They cannot smell. Uh, in Isaiah, uh, God smells the aroma. God can smell. This is an ex external stimuli in the very passage that we're talking about. They cannot touch. They cannot see. Within the Bible, God is the God who sees. Isaiah 40 through 48 is a long passage. It argues many things, but conspicuously absent is any idea of ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. Surely, surely if that was a feature of God that set him apart from the false gods, that would be covered. It is just not there. There's no proof text arguing ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge in Isaiah or the rest of the Bible. In fact, the way the author writes about God precludes this idea. To Isaiah, God is the God who sees. Isaiah is an open theist. Cue the fireworks. All right, and I will give you a chance to respond to that, uh, Daniel, yeah. a little bit, just because uh, Chris did have the first uh, word on this, so it's fair to give uh, Daniel the final word. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I'm a little disappointed that we got caught up on, on some of the uh, details there. Um, I would just reemphasize, though, that number one, um, everything that Chris just said, they, it, it does not demonstrate in any way that Isaiah was teaching open theism. It, even if he was accurate in the things that he said, that Isaiah is not teaching this particular kind of knowledge, it does not mean that he's teaching open theism. It simply means that he is not specifically teaching exactly what uh, Chris has defined as God's omniscience. Um, it's not to say that I don't believe that God is omniscient. I'm simply saying it's not really the point of this debate. The debate was to determine whether or not Isaiah was teaching open theism. Uh, I, I see none of that in the text. Like I said, the overarching themes of the text are that God 
his word is sure, like I said, and from verse 40, that his word stands forever. Though everything else fades, though he blows and, and all people wither like a flower of the field, his word shall not fail. Uh, Israel takes comfort in that. He's the creator. He created all things. He measured out everything, not in the sense that he gained knowledge, but everything was measured against him because he was the creator and he did not gain any knowledge in the process. Um, and because of his creative power, they can also be comforted by that power. Additionally, he is in control of all human events. Again and again, Isaiah references these situations where he is shown, God is shown as taking the right hand of of Israel, taking the right hand of Cyrus and dragging them along to do exactly what he would have them to do. And so this is the overarching idea of Isaiah is that because God can do this, because God is in charge of all of human history, he does as he pleases with his creation, all of humanity, and he accomplishes all of his purposes. Then when he goes to trial against the idols, when he declares that he will do something, we can rest assured that he will do it. So that when he tells Israel that they will be delivered at the hands of Cyrus, they can rest assured that it'll happen. They can take comfort in that because of his ability to carry out whatever he declares. Wow. Good guys, man. Well, thank you so much for those, uh, the, this, this whole debate. It's been awesome. Um, I mean, we've covered a yeah, very spirited. We've we've covered a range of stuff on the show, and you know we've covered you know Arminianism, Calvinism. We've covered now open theism, and this is like like the best concluder. And and Chris, if you could just let us know uh, about your book and and where people can find you and and so forth again, just let it you know just give us one more shout out there. Yeah, I run the blog uh, God is Open, so GodIsOpen.com. I, I have a book on Amazon that uh, you could buy for like four bucks on Kindle. Uh, and I also, if you want it for free, just ask me. The, the point of putting it out for Kindle is so that there's wide access to it and stuff like that. So if you want a free copy, just ask me. I'll send you a free copy, and that's yours. Uh, the podcast is God is Open. You can find it on um, uh, the Apple store, iTunes Store. I don't know if that's a thing. The iTunes Store, and then uh, like SoundCloud, you can find it, and then anywhere else that does podcasts. I think I think all the RSS feeds go wherever, and so that is an option. If you if you love the sound of my voice and you just can't get enough of me, <laughs> that is that is the place to go. Nice, nice. Now, now. Uh... Uh, Daniel, you yeah. said I, I heard somewhere in your opening some sort something about presuppositionalism. Huh? Are you presuppositionalist? I am. Yeah. A, a nice. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I'm pro I'm sure we're gonna have uh, some of that on the show in the future, man. So we'd love to have you come back on and talk about that a little bit as well. Now, uh, you, you know, you said you might you're starting a blog up too, right? Yeah, I will. Uh, I've got a, a website. It's gonna be laudatorium.org. Uh, that's L-A-U-D-I-T-O-R-I-U-M. Uh, and that's going to have uh, blogs on there as well as just really be a resource uh, page for uh, theology. So Awesome. And I would, awesome. just another note too, I would highly recommend David's, or sorry, not David's book, Chris's book. Uh, I, I did read your book, the, the amount of it that I had the time to read. I read a good deal of it. And even though I don't agree, obviously, with your conclusions, I, I think it, it's very well written. I was really impressed. Um, it's a very well-written book, so I do recommend that. That's high praise coming from you, so I'll, I'll take it. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, Daniel, you should write an endorsement for the back of the second edition. <laughs> yeah, sounds the good. The second edition. Uh, the one Somebody with three less spelling errors. 
<laughs> Actually, that's funny because your, your book has very few spelling errors compared to some of the, the books I've read recently that I was really surprised that they had spelling errors going through the whole. I uh, had betting. like, <laughs> there are like five people that read it and there are spelling errors each time that multiple people would miss. And it's like, I, there's still some spelling errors. It's, it's insane. It, they, these things, they, they, they plague you for the rest of your life. I don't know. <laughs> Human mind is good at filling in gaps. It, it just goes to show you that all humans are flawed. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, it has been an excellent discussion. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Very spirited. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of deep concepts there for us to consider. Um, and I, I think that you both present, uh, presented very well. And uh, yes, it was a uh, debate went as well as I hoped that it would. So thank you both for that. Any uh, final words from you, Russell? Yeah, man. I just want to wish everybody here a Merry Christmas and, you know, uh, and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Is that triggering? Do we trigger half That's of our it, audience? Man. We're done. <laughs> We're done now. Yeah, we trigger everybody. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs>